following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say that realistically, I could just pray and we could sing and I could send you out after that video. Um, baptism, what you just saw, baptism, it, it, it is an enacted, it is an embodied sermon. It, it's preaching, it, it's proclamation. Each person you saw up there submitting to Jesus' call to be baptized upon their repentance and their faith and their confidence in him is saying that I am united to Jesus. You know, his death was for me. His resurrection for me. What he is in his death, he is for me. What he is in his resurrection, he is for me. That's gospel preaching. That's gospel declaration. Um, I have been raised to the newness of life because of Jesus. Life eternally and even the newness of life now. Uh, a, A new life, even presently. A new life that I live until in God's timing and according to God's purpose that Jesus returns a new life right now by his spirit in which he is rehumanizing me. That's what's being proclaimed. I am being made more human by the grace of God and the work of his spirit because of Jesus. Not more human in the biological sense, like how do we actually become more human, but more human according to God's original intent and design. That's what we've been considering for the last several weeks. You know, what does it mean to be human? Big questions like, who are we and why are we here? You know, what's gone wrong and what's the solution? Where or to whom do I turn for clarity on those things? Now, those big questions are behind some of the more pressing conversations and pressing struggles that we have in our lives and in our day to day. And they've served in a sort as an umbrella for us over our last several weeks as we've been spending time in God's word, in particular in Genesis chapters one, two, and three. And we've said over and over again as we've been going through these chapters that each of us will will answer those questions, those big questions. Why are we here? What's gone wrong? What, what's the solution? What does it mean to actually be human in this and live and thrive? We'll, we'll answer those questions and live accordingly based on our understanding of the story that provides those answers. A story that narrates to us what it means to be human and how as humans we are meant to live and thrive. And so we've spent time patiently working through these first three chapters of the book of Genesis because it is of utmost importance for us to be ever mindful that you and I in the story of our life finds its place in God's big true story of which we're simply a part And so we've been considering this story that gives shape and understanding to these questions and shape and understanding to what it means for us to be human and to live in such a way that we would thrive. And as we've been walking through it, we've seen from the beginning, starting in Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2, we've seen God put himself on display in his majesty as the good and sovereign creator 
the one who has ordered and continues to sustain all things. And as the good and sovereign creator, he has all authority over all of his creation. And as the good creator, he alone knows what's best for his creation. And the glory is he's made that known. He knows what's best for his creation. And that includes us. We've spent time considering the mind-blowing reality that ultimately you and I as humans We come from the intention, the mind, the will, and the hands of God. We spent time really trying to explore what that actually means. We've considered that humanity and humanity alone in God's created order is invested with a profound dignity that comes from being made in the image and after the likeness of God himself. This is his intention for us. And that dignity, we've spent time talking about it, shapes the way we understand ourselves, see ourselves, see the world around us, interact with those around us. We've spent time considering this, but it's not just a profound dignity that's part of being human. According to God's intention, he created us with a serious responsibility as well. We were invested with a responsibility to exercise a a delegated authority or dominion over the created order. We were meant to be reflections, images of our creator in the created order who would steward and cultivate the created order in such a way that it would begin to unearth and, and unfold the potential that God placed in all of his creation. We were stewards of that and were to exercise that kind of care and authority over that, to keep it, to cultivate it. And so we began to see how that might shape the way we enter into our daily lives and the world in which we're in. How we might not just approach our vocations and our work, but but even our relationships with one another. We're, We're part of the created order. How are we stewarding and keeping one another in such a way that we can see who God intends for us to be now in his son and how in our interactions and relationships are we unfolding that? Are we unearthing that? It was a serious responsibility, but it had a second part. God intended for us as his image bearers to not only steward his created order to have that delegated authority, but to be fruitful and multiply to multiply image reflectors, image bearers throughout creation. And so we spent some time talking about the institution of marriage and the relationship between a man and a a woman. And we've considered all of these things, this dignity and this responsibility. And as amazing as it all is, it doesn't remove the reality. And I think we tend to overlook it sometimes. It doesn't remove the reality that we're also created beings, There's dignity, there's responsibility, but we are created beings. And with that comes the awareness of a very profound humility. We have limits. As created beings, we we have limits. As God ordered and structured his creation and his world, as he created you and I, as he created humanity, each of his created things in his created world has boundaries and limits. And those limits were for the thriving of his creation. They were for their well-being. The the limits, the limitations, the boundaries, the contours, the structures, the ordering. It was all the context for his created order to thrive. And that includes you and I. But as we've seen each week as we've been going through all of these things, 
This is how God set things up. For his highest glory, for our deepest joy. But it's not how you and I tend to experience the world on a day in and day out basis. Something has happened. Something had gone wrong. And we've seen each week as we've been taking a look at all of these different things about what it means to be human, understand this story. We've been, we've been seeing each week the corrupting, the corroding, the tarnishing, and the, the breaking, shattering impact of sin over all things. Right? The story isn't just Genesis 1 and 2. The, the story goes on into chapter 3. And chapter 3 begins, you may recall, with Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman in God's created world. It begins with them being tempted to believe and then live according to an alternative story about what it meant to be human. What it truly means to be human and live. To truly be human and thrive. A serpent began to introduce doubt into the hearts and minds of Adam and Eve and began to ask them, did God really say, as God provided the contours, the structures, the boundaries for his creation, the, the ultimate freedom that man had had one contour and structure and boundary to it. They, they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. For them, there was everything in God's created order to, to eat and to enjoy as reminders of his provision and his care. And the serpent came and said, did he really say that? If you do it, listen, you're not going to die. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, surely you won't die. Listen, he's holding out on you. He doesn't want the fullest and the highest for you. He wants to keep you in your place, and he's lobbing out these empty threats so that you'll stay in your place. Is he really good? Is his word really trustworthy? Would he really want to put that boundary and contour and restriction around you? Is he really going to do what he actually says? Listen, the serpent said, your joy, your thriving as a human is found outside of his restriction. This is the heartbeat of the story that was introduced in Genesis chapter 3. This was the original alternative story of what it meant to be human and how a human was meant to thrive. And it's led to devastating consequences. And we've seen each week as we've come at it from different perspectives and different angles that God wasn't holding out on Adam and Eve. He wasn't holding out on humanity. He set the entire created order up in such a way that they would thrive, that they would be with him. He would be with them and they could truly live. He set the entire thing up for their joy and for their thriving. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that boundary and that restriction, it was in place because it represented something. It represented the knowledge of good and evil, not just in their awareness of it, but in a particular way, in knowing good and evil the way that God does being uniquely able to actually determine it. You see, what this tree represented was taking upon themselves the right and the responsibility that only belonged to God. Listening to the serpent's story and living in light of it, 
meant that they would take upon themselves the right to determine what alone belonged to God to determine. It meant that they were beginning to assume that they knew better than God himself, the one who created all things, created them, set this thing up in place for them to thrive, that they knew better than he did about what was best and right for them. What was best and right for them to truly live. See, eating from that tree, eating from that fruit, believing that alternative story and living in light of it, that true life and true joy and thriving was found by transgressing God's restriction and boundary. The act of believing that and eating that fruit was an act of treason, an act of rebellion. It was an act and an effort to put themselves in God's rightful place. That's what it meant. Eating from that tree, transgressing that limitation and that boundary that God put in place for their thriving. It was an act of turning away from God as life. Turning away from God as the giver and sustainer of true life. Turning away from God as the source of thriving. That kind of treason and that kind of rebellion could only be responded to in one way. And that was death, which is what God said would happen if they did it. The serpent said it was an empty thread. And as you read the story, you've got to wonder in the moment, maybe Adam and Eve thought the serpent was right. They ate from the tree and they didn't immediately die. And so you've got to wonder, maybe they thought, hey, maybe the serpent's right. Maybe God really has been holding out on us. Maybe he really is just trying to keep us locked into this one place. He doesn't want us to be like him. To think that way, though, would would be to understand the story in a misguided way. The lack of the immediacy of their death was due to God's mercy alone. It was already an element, an exposure of the grace that would characterize the fullness of God's story. God had a plan, and he was already preserving them in light of this plan. And so while in the moment their death, as God said would come, wasn't immediate, here's what happened. Their death became inevitable. While it wasn't immediate, it became inevitable. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, when God comes to them and they're trying to hide from him, they're trying to cover themselves from one another, and God comes to them and seeks them out. And as the chapter goes on, God begins to pronounce his judgment and his justice based on their rebellion and their treason. He says in chapter 3, verse 19, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Their death wasn't immediate, but now their death was inevitable. And death, my friends, is the last element of our humanity that we're going to look at in this series that we've been going through in the first three chapters of Genesis. Death is something that is inevitable for every single one of us. There's a few things I want you to catch as we begin to unpack this. And the first is simply this. Death was never meant to be our physical destiny. That wasn't the intended destiny in the beginning. In fact, the apostle Paul writes and kind of clarifies this for the church in in Romans chapter five. Paul said, just as sin came into the world through one man 
and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Death came through sin. It came through their first transgression of God's boundaries, of his contours, of his limits for their joy. Their believing the alternative story of being human offered to them by the serpent in the garden was an act of sin, and sin brought death. It wasn't part of the original design. And while it wasn't immediate in the garden, it made death inevitable for everyone born from that point forward. And not only is it inevitable, you've got to understand that death is inescapable. It comes to everyone. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, death is as certain for each and every single one of us as our birthday is. The only difference is we only know when one's going to happen. We only know the date of our birth. We don't know the day on which each and every single one of us is going to have to face the reality of death. But here's the thing. We, we live in a culture today, and you're glad you're here this morning, right? Like, you're all trying to think, I wish they had carpet on the floors and real chairs so I could be more quiet when I left. Um, here's the thing. We, we live today in, in an age that continues to be tainted by that original story by that original alternative story to what it meant to be human and to thrive. And the idea that God was just offering up empty threats to Adam and Eve. And that story has, has tarnished and left a legacy that ends even in our own day to day. And it looks different in, in different times and places, but we live in a culture today that has taken in so much of that alternative story that we do everything we can in our power, oftentimes unconsciously, to avoid the reality of it to avoid the reality of death, which is crazy ironic because we're force-fed the reality of death around every corner. News, movies, TV, everything we read, everything we watch, somebody's dying, somebody's killing somebody, something's happening, and we're fine with it. We take it in, we're entertained by it, we're amused by it, but we don't want to talk about it. Just don't make me talk about it. Don't make me consider the inevitability of it. In this world in which we live that's been totally steeped in that alternative story that the serpent was pushing in the very beginning has created a, a culture today that it's happened in previous cultures. We're not unique in this, but the expression of it is unique in our day and age because of the world in which we live. But it's a culture that pushes the absolute pursuit of youthfulness, pushing away the inevitability of each and every single one of our ends. We've got cosmetics, surgeries, pills. We've got everything we can imagine to constantly make us push away and mask over the reality of an aging body on which the other side is nearing the day in which we're going to die. I get it. I totally get it. Right? The body is aging. And as it's aging, it's a constant reminder that it may not be here forever. So the more things that I can do to make it not look like the inevitable is actually happening, the more I'm going to do. I, I totally get it. I feel the pressure. But the world in which we're in so idolizes this perpetual youthfulness that it's an act of escapism trying to get out from under the reality of what it actually means to be human. 
And when death's sting does come, it comes to someone we know or someone we love. We live in a day and an age, and this has been something that's been baffling for me, or not baffling, but you see it in a different way as a pastor. When someone does taste the sting of death and someone close dies, most even within their surrounding circles don't feel the necessity or the imperative to even attend a funeral. See, even in churches, this story has shaped the way we face and understand death. We don't actually have funerals in churches anymore. The funeral was a high and a holy service in the history of a church. It was an opportunity for everyone who was there to be reminded, one, of the inevitability of death, the finiteness and the mortality that each of us have to deal with, the promises of hope and resurrection that come in Christ and Christ alone. But in the last 50 or so years, the church, at least in the West, and I think we've imported it around the world, is has chosen to move away from what was historically understood to be a funeral service. And we've moved into celebration of life services, homegoings, anything to avoid talking about the reality that someone's actually died. And I'm going to face that reality too. You know, even the architecture of churches has changed. If you go into the bigger cities that have older churches, but now you kind of go out into the country and the surrounding areas, You may come across a church that has a cemetery in the front of it. It's not hidden off to the side. It's not eight acres about a mile away. They do. It's right in front of the church. And that was intentional because every single week you were meant to walk through that cemetery as a reminder of the saints who have gone before you of your own mortality as you'd entered in the historically red doors of a church, being reminded that you're entering into the fullness and the newness of life through the shed blood of Christ where you would gather with the saints and be reminded again of the story, the story that shapes who you truly are. But it started by being reminded of your own mortality. It was part of the historical reality of how the church functioned, but even in the church, we, we, we try to get out from under this and escape it somehow. Keep it out of sight because if you put it in front of me, it's going to spoil my living. That tends to be how we think about it. Todd Billings said it this way, we may care about someone else's death, but only when it's meaningful for my own story. Our own story counts the most. Death is something that happens to other people. But here's the thing, friends. Death, your death, it's inevitable. And it's not hypothetical. It's not something that only happens to someone else. All the things that we do in our minds and and in life, the actions we take, all the things we do to try to push back the reality of the aging, the dying, the, the reality of being human in this sense, all of it are just different forms of escapism. That's all it is. We're trying to escape the ever-present reminder that we're created, this profound humility that comes with being created, and this inevitable reality of our mortality that's come because of the transgression in the garden. But one day, sooner than any of us probably realize, each of us is going to have to face death. David wrote about this in Psalm 39. David said, "Oh, oh Lord, make me know my end, and What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Your life is way more fleeting than you think. 
Behold, he said in verse 5, you have made my days a few handbreadths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. And then he says, Selah. Sit with that for a minute. Your life is fleeting. I mean, one day, sooner than you realize, because we all think we have more days, sooner than you realize, you're going to realize that your days are just a few handbreadths. You know, the stories we take in and the practices that we engage in, in our current day and age, especially in such a technological world that those in the Bible could have never imagined, everything about how we take in and how we operate is constantly telling us that we're the center of the universe, we're the center of the story, and the days in which we have to do and to have and to be are going to go on forever. But it's not true. We've said it in different ways throughout the series. One of the dangers of a, such a technologically advanced age is that technology can be very dehumanizing. It can continue to try to convince us that we can deny limits, that we can defy reality. My friends, people are hungry for rehumanization, to understanding what it really is to be human. The last couple of years were kind of like a, a DJ scratch on that story of endless living and center of the universe. As a couple of generations had to face something that they had never had to face in their lifetime to this point. A level of death on a global scale and danger on a global scale they hadn't faced before. But that reminder only lasted for a little while, right? Your days are fleeting. They're just a few hand breaths. In fact, Moses, who, who wrote the book of Genesis, who, who narrated this story of God's creation and intention, even of, of humanity for us, you know, he also penned a few psalms. And in Psalm 90, Moses wrote this for the people of Israel before they went into the land. He said in Psalm 90, verse 3, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. Right? Time is short. Your time is short. It's shorter than you probably realize. And so he says in verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So, so let me try to land this reality in a different way for you, right? Let's do some mosaic, psalmic math, right? Consider it this way. Ray, check my math, all right? 70 years, he says, right? That's 25,500 days. If by reason of strength you make it to 80, that's 29,200 days. So standing here this morning, give or take about 20 or 30 some odd days, I didn't do the exact math, I'm at 16,700. We think about people that we've admired in our world and in society who, who die at a young age and we constantly say they, they left too soon, they're gone too soon, there's too much miss. I, I was trying to think of who would capture all of that and we still talk about Kobe being gone too soon, don't we? 
So many people across generations absolutely stunned into silence by his death. 14,900 days. That's it. And to this day, we're still saying gone too soon. If we take Moses' words in verse 4 and we shift the math a little bit, and if our 1,000 years are one day to God, then dying at 70 is 70% of one day to God. It's 100 minutes. Less than two hours in a day to God. A life of 70. It's a hand breath. If you take his logic and say, or it's like a watch in the night. You know that in the Hebrew world, a, a night watch was an element of time, a time in the day. It was how they ordered time. A night watch lasted three hours. So if we take Moses' math there, three hours, our 1,000 years is like three hours to God, then an 80-year life is less than 15 minutes of one day to God. Kobe at 41, 7.5 minutes in a day to God. Time is short. It's fleeting. People from all walks of life and historical realities have, have recognized at different times the fleeting nature of the days we have. Seneca, famous Roman philosopher, wrote a little paper called The Shortness of Life. And he said, the space that's been granted to us rushes by so speedily and so swiftly that all except a very few find life at an end just when they're getting ready to live. Here's the thing. We all go, hmm. Is he right, though? Is death what gets in the way of people finally living? He, he said all but a very few come to the end on which they die, and it's getting in the way of them finally living. That's the story we've swallowed. But what happened before all that? That wasn't living? I think the Bible tells a different story. If you and I can begin to rightly see and, and respond to the inevitability and even the inescapability of our own death, I think God in his grace will begin to bring true clarity to how we live now. Clarity to truly living now. What does seeing and responding rightly look like, though? You don't have to go further than Psalm 90. Moses has helped us out. Psalm 90, verse 12. Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is asking God to help wake him and God's people up to the inescapable reality of their own finiteness. The inescapable reality of your own humanness. But it's more than just waking up to this reality, though. That's not the full picture. I've never been shy about telling you that I love country music. It's part of being from Tennessee. I love it. And I will tell you that if you want to write a hit country song, there's about a handful of things you can talk about, right? Everybody talks about dogs and trucks. I'll tell you, you want to write a hit country song? Talk about what you would do if you found out you were going to die. Every single one of them is a hit. In fact, I can start singing one of them, which I won't do because I can't sing. But you would know it. I went skydiving, <laughs> Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull, 
You heard it too, yeah. You know it's a hit. <laughs> Second biggest song Tim McGraw ever did in his entire career. And he's not the only one. But just becoming aware of the finiteness of your days doesn't inherently lead to a heart and a life of wisdom. Coming to the reality of your finiteness, the number of your days, can lead to increased foolishness. That's the stuff of midlife crises. That's the stuff of extreme bucket lists. That's the stuff in our technological day of FOMO on steroids. Numbering your days and coming to terms with the finiteness of your life doesn't inherently in itself lead to wisdom. And this is a thing these days because even amongst younger generations, probably my age at 46 and down, there there is outside of the church an increasing fascination and awareness of of old philosophical trends like stoicism. And inherent in a lot of those trends was this awareness of mortality. In fact, one of the big stoic maxims is memento mori, Latin. Remember, you will die. It was part of the philosophy. To live well, you had to remember on a daily basis you were going to die. And so today, you find people selling coins that you can keep in your pocket that have that on it and they remember they're going to die and all these different ways that they're selling people to remember that they're going to die and and to understand the finiteness of their life. But just being aware of it doesn't lead to wisdom. It can lead to great foolishness. You see, you're still setting your days on your terms, numbering them on your terms. What we want is to number our days according to God's terms, not ours, which is why it's very important to understand in Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses is actually praying. If you go back and read Psalm 90 and read the the script at the top, it's a prayer. Moses is asking God, teach me, teach us us to number our days, my days, because what I want, because what I need is a heart of wisdom, not an enviable timeline, a heart of wisdom, right? Wisdom, according to the scriptures in in Job, is the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord, according to Solomon, is the hatred of evil, a heart of wisdom that comes from God helping us to see and face and know the finiteness of our days is is a heart that fears the Lord such that it refuses to exchange the truth of his story for a lie. That's what a heart of wisdom is. It's a heart that increasingly trusts that God and his word and his rule and his ways and his person are good. A heart of wisdom is one that increasingly is able to discern the truthfulness of God's story in light of the falsehood of all the alternative stories that come to see them for what they are and to refuse them. This is what a heart of wisdom is and it comes from God helping us according to his terms and his ways understand and own the reality of our own finiteness, our own humanity. John Bloom said it this way, a heart of wisdom fears losing the joy-producing treasure of God himself so much It sees unbelief as a thief who only steals, kills, and destroys. A heart of wisdom learns that the only thing that wastes life is unbelief. 
teach me to number my days according to your terms because what I want and what I need is a heart that sees you for who you are, that sees the truthfulness of who you are and the life that you've laid out, that sees the falsehood in the competing stories that try to narrate for me what it is to be human and how to live and to see them as that which robs me of truly living. This is what Moses is praying for. You see, in light of death's inevitability and inescapability, a heart of wisdom that comes according to God's terms is one that shapes us to be able to hate death and yet at the, not, at the same time not fear death. To hate death but at the same time not be paralyzed by the fear of death. This is what we see even in the life of Jesus himself, that great story we've talked about before with Jesus at the tomb of his best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus. It was there at that place that Jesus stood face to face with death, the last enemy. And at that tomb, he wept. Death was not a friend. Death was an enemy. It's always been an enemy. It wasn't part of the original intent for our physical bodies. But it's a defeated enemy. It's an enemy to be hated but it's a defeated enemy. It doesn't need to be feared. We have no reason to fear it. It's a crushed enemy. It's why Paul would write to the church in Corinth and say, death is swallowed up in Jesus' victory. Death, where is your victory? You were defeated. Death has been conquered by the king of life. You see, it was on the cross that Jesus didn't just taste death. He took death all the way down into his body. It was on the cross that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And the justice of God was laid on him. And in all of your familiarity with the story, don't miss this. Later that day, they took Jesus off the cross, a dead man. A physically dead man. They put him in a borrowed tomb, a dead man. He tasted the justice of God for our sin and our treason. Our ongoing belief that we can figure out the story to thriving and joy better than the one who created us and knows us and loves us. He tasted God's justice for our sin in our place all the way down into his body. And as a man, he physically died, which is what makes what happened three days later so amazing. Three days later, and I hope we get to see it in heaven, he exited that tomb. I hope we see in heaven that he just stood behind that, in that tomb and just rolled that thing with his fingers, boop, rolled that stone away. I mean, maybe he walked through it, I don't know, but I just want to see him kind of roll it away. And he walked out physically, a man, alive. He who was laid in that tomb physically dead walked out physically alive. And in that resurrection, he defeated death itself. He permanently defeated death. 
In his resurrection, he secured the end of death. A day that is going to come when he returns, when death will no longer exist. Its defeat will be eternal. We have no reason to be afraid. It's an enemy. We can hate it for what it is. We can grieve when its temporary sting takes its toll on someone we love. But it's a defeated enemy. It has no power over God's people anymore. Therefore, we we can hate it. We don't have to fear it, which allows us then to trust God and ask God for a heart of wisdom that enables us to then face the finiteness of our life, to number our days instead of trying to give in to all the ways we try to escape reality. It's a defeated enemy. We can ask God to help us to see our mortality for what it is and push back against all the ways we're tempted to try to escape it. Since we're united to Jesus, death has no ultimate power over us. Therefore, there's nothing to fear in God helping you to face your mortality, to face reality, to face your finiteness, your humanness. You know, a lot of what the historical church used to do was was part of this, not just the cemeteries out front where you would walk through, but even part of the calendar of the church is you would observe Ash Wednesday and even the Lenten season going into Easter and, and the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper and communion. They're all very tactile reminders throughout a year of our own mortality, our own finiteness, our own return to dust that is inevitable, but also the reminders and the promises of the hope the promises of God in Christ. In fact, Martin Luther said in a sermon, we should familiarize ourselves with death during our lifetime, inviting death into our presence when it's still at a distance and not yet on the move in our bodies. Todd Billings, who is a pastor who was diagnosed with an incurable disease, He goes through a series of treatments on a regular basis to manage it, but it has no cure, and it will take what doctors say is probably two to three decades off of his life. He began to face the reality of his finiteness in a new way that he had never considered before, and he spent time, he was a Luther scholar, uh, studying Luther and his sermons, and Todd Billings said this in, in contemplating this reality that Luther encouraged us to familiarize ourselves with death. He said it's important because death... Facing your own mortality, facing the finiteness and the numbering of your days, death punctures our hubris. It punctures our pride, our sense that the world is a drama in which we are the focal point. A heart of wisdom that comes from God teaching us to number our days according to his terms and in light of his story is one of the most powerful instruments of grace that God has in putting to death our pride that constantly tells us we're the center. We're the center of the drama. We're the center of the story. These days have no end. No rightly, by God's grace, learning according to God's story to number our days on his terms and from his perspective. It frees us to embrace a, a type of intentionality in the way that we live that's hard to embrace without it. 
You see, facing your own death and your own mortality and the numbering of your days actually in the hands of God according to his terms becomes fuel for the way we actually live. Instead of it ending living, it actually becomes fuel for how we live now. In the newness of life that we have in Christ, it begins to give new shape and perspective to that which is now, that which is today. How we live for God's greatest glory, our deepest joy according to his story. But it's not just that, a a heart of wisdom that comes from God helping us to number our days. It, It actually frees us to live the days that we have in deep and abiding hope. Real hope. Because we know death doesn't win. Death doesn't win. It's not the end. This is part of God's promise. Jaquel Crow said it best, and I'll just let you hear her. She said, we ought to embrace hope with everything we've got. Boundless hope, crazy hope. Hope that seeps into our lives and affects every nook and cranny. Hope in the midst of violence. Hope in the midst of sickness. Hope in the midst of pain. Hope in the midst of grief. Hope spilling everywhere. Flooding and flowing all over our lives. Soak your heart in hope. Why? Because Jesus wins. And that means so do his people. Jesus wins. The king of life has conquered the last enemy of death. And in his victory over death, he quite literally transformed it. He removed its sting. He removed its power. He defeated it. And now our mortal bodies, the death that comes because of that original sin, the reminder of our finiteness and mortality actually becomes now the entrance into eternal life with him in his presence. Totally changed it. Numbering our days according to God's story and terms Facing our mortality because of Jesus actually becomes a gift to God's people. A gift in helping us truly live. A gift in helping us become human again. A gift in helping us live in light of his story for his glory, for our joy. Reminders of our mortality, of our humility as created beings before God. Our reminder is that even now, our our failing bodies that are the thing that begin to remind us first and foremost of the inevitability of death, those failing bodies, they're not the entirety of our story. They're not the final measure of our life. The drama of our life is not the central drama in the universe. These reminders of of our own mortality and the grace of God in helping us to number our days according to his terms that we might live wisely, we might live freely, we might have a heart of wisdom. They help us very practically if we're aware of it to push back against the the stories of our day that would somehow dehumanize and marginalize the process even of aging and dying. I mean, it is not something that our culture and our world recognizes as a real, true part of life to be accepted. And people, as they age, especially aging into their death, in our day are tremendously marginalized. God helping us to number our days, it 
helps us to see our lives according to his story. It helps us to understand our humanity in light of all reality. And it, it helps us to push back against those things that would seek to even dehumanize us now. It frees us up to enjoy and live in the wonder of his love for us and his son. Sam Alberry said it this way in his book, What Does God Have to Say About Our Body? He said, our 70 years or 80 or 102 will not feel too short if it turns out that they're not the only life we have. And certainly not if they're not the best life we'll have. The stories of our day are continually trying to feed us the lie that this is it. Right here, right now. So you best get about getting the most experiences and the most things. Get about getting now because there is nothing else to come. All that leaves us in is a spin cycle of frustration and despair because the more experiences you have, the more things you do, the more things you get because this is all there is are only a reminder to you in the stillness of the moment that there are things you're not going to get and things you're not going to have. But what if this isn't all that there is? Certainly not the best life that you're going to have. Well, this is the reality of God's story. Teach us to number our days. To not deny them. To not try to avoid the reality. But teach us to number our days because we want a heart of wisdom. We want a heart that sees unbelief as the thief of joy. We want a heart of wisdom that frees us to hate death, yet not live in fear of it. A heart of wisdom that enables us to live freely and boldly for Jesus. A heart of wisdom that comes from God, helping us to see and number our days, that frees us to live open-armed in hope. A heart of wisdom that allows us today, tomorrow, and the next day, as long as God gives us breath, to join Paul and being convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll end it this way with a quote from a man named N.D. Wilson. Some of you have read N.D. Wilson. In his book, Notes on a -a Tilt-A-Whirl, he was talking about death and And he said, to God's eyes, you never actually leave the stage. You don't cease to exist. Death is a chapter ending. It's just an act. It's part of the play. So look to him. Walk toward him. And this is what caught me. He said, the cocoon in nature is a death, but not a final death. For you and I, the coffin can be a tragedy, but not for long. By God's grace, there will be butterflies. This is the story of being human according to the grace and mercy of God. This is the story being proclaimed every time you see someone being baptized. By faith, I'm united to Jesus. As he died, was buried, and was raised, so am I in him. And now I'm raised to newness of life, now and forever. Death has been defeated. And at the same time, it's an element of what you and I proclaim every week as we gather together here. 
For those who have believed upon Jesus in repentance and faith, you're invited in just a moment to come forward to receive communion. And as you do, it's your confidence in Jesus' victory and the promise of newness of life that you proclaim each week as you come forward. As you remember his body broken in your place, taking that bread and you dip it in that cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin, his death that you may live. His resurrection, that you may have the newness of life now and forever. As you do, you're preaching to yourself and you're proclaiming to everyone else around you that you believe in the story of the Lord. That his son is making you more and more like himself, more and more human. If that's your confidence and your profession, in just a moment, after we have a moment of silence, you'll be invited to come forward and receive communion. And if you're here this morning and you would say that's not your confidence, we're glad that you are here. I want you to know there is no greater news that we would ever want to help you understand and ever want to live into than the news of God's grace and mercy to you and his son. So we would love to help you better understand that. But as you see people coming forward, they're coming forward because they are proclaiming that their confidence in the newness of life now and forever is in Jesus. So let me pray for us. And We're going to give you a moment to just reflect on God's word, to consider God's word, his kindness continually poured out to us in his son, and then we'll continue to respond together. Father, we thank you this morning that your grace and mercy extend even to and what our experience of a broken world makes a a difficult subject to consider. Lord, your mercy and your grace transforms the reality of our mortality. We don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to fear death and and avoid it and push it back at all costs. But Lord, by your mercy and the work of your spirit, we're asking that you would help us to number our days according to your terms, to to see our finiteness, the, the, the shortness of the time in which we have according to your terms that we might have and live with a heart of wisdom, to live freely and lightly with you and for you, that, that we would be able to increasingly discern, discern the truthfulness of, of your story and the truthfulness of your map for our joy and thriving and, and push back all the alternative stories that are being brought to us, trying to convince us of what it means to be human things that don't lead to life, but lead to destruction. Lord, teach us, help us number our days. Help us according to your story. See our life that we might live with you in joy. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.